I always feel like an interruption after musical beauty. I think that could go on. Although speech is a kind of music, if you think about it, each of us has a little different instrument, a little different tone, changes in volume, changes in intensity. Robert Pinsky, the poet laureate a few years ago said, you know, when we talk to each other, it's like we're singing to each other all day long. How we go up the scale with a question, are you coming to dinner tonight? Or down the scale with an expression of sympathy, I'm so sorry. So I'm gonna to sing to you for the next 20 minutes or so, but I'm gonna do it in speech. So. so the Minor Prophets today land us, uh, our Minor Prophets series lands us in Jonah, chapters one and two, as you heard read this morning. And this is a great story. But I know the use of that word story raises some questions. I'd rather not spend our few precious minutes this morning talking about the fish only. By the way, it's never called a whale. But when you come to some passages, there's some things you can just not not talk about. So we have to talk about the whale. It's the elephant or fish in the room. There's going to be a lot of puns this morning, I'll, I'll warn you. Some people just can't swallow it. Others have no problem. Um, it's really the question, right, of how literally can we take something like this? And I just want to say that the word literally itself is a little tricky. If you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is kind of the Bible of dictionaries, the first definition of literally is simply pertaining to the alphabet. The second definition is to read something as the words originally presented, to read it with verbal exactness. Now, to read something as it originally presented us means we have to take account of how the author wanted us to receive it, and therefore we have to take account of genre. What was the spirit of this? What kind of literature, and what is the contract between myself and the author? Now, you and I automatically do this with discourses in our own experience, right? We initially know the difference between CNN, the History Channel, and a Doonesbury comic strip. We come to it expecting different pleasures and different goods. If I were to go to CNN and I would get a History Channel dramatization, I'd be disappointed. But if I go to History Channel and I get news from a desk, I'd be disappointed. There are particular goods that pertain to different ways that truth is communicated. And profound truths can be found in all of these ways. But we would trust ourselves to understand the particular way each medium communicates and to seek the particular good of that, holding loosely maybe other factors. Well, Jonah, everyone agrees, who has considered it carefully, is a satire. It is more like the History Channel than it is like CNN. It's filled with irony and humor and comedy. And the author was using the tools of that trade, hyperbole, arm-waving symbols, paces in the narrative, to tell the truths of his story. But it's also not just satire. By the way, it's a satire about a really bad prophet. But it is prophetic. Which is to say, there is profound truth here that no matter what the genre is, you and I are not released from. 
Now, I do believe to tell you that Jonah was a real person. I believe he really ran from God. I believe he was miraculously saved somehow. And I really believe he ended up back in Nineveh to do the very thing he was supposed to do. I believe it all required miracles of some kind, so why not a big fish? But I do believe more strongly that this story tells us about God is true. And the fact that Jesus cites Jonah should tell us that we need to take it deadly seriously, even as we laugh at Jonah. If someone cannot swallow the fish story, that does not let them off the hook one bit when it comes to the prophetic truth of the story. We have to respond to the truth that the story presents in the way it presents it. So what is the truth of the story? Surprisingly, three things. In short, we're gonna learn that Jonah is about a God who is and has always been the giver and preserver of life. In spite of those people who would say there is a harsher God in the Old Testament, he has always been about life. Second, it's a story about how a person's obedience to God is not just about them and their personal holiness. It is about letting God use our obedience to save other people. We are the church here for the sake of others. And finally, it is a story about God's covenant with us that he is so committed to you and me that even in our failures of obedience, he is willing to give us a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. That is to read Jonah literally. That is the way it is presenting the truth to us. So I do actually, in that spirit, though, want to read the story with you this morning. Because long after you forget what I say, this story will continue to work on you. And so I want to begin by reading again the first four verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach again against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, in case you missed it, this is funny. Now, this takes place about three miles north of Nazareth, so in northern Israel. And so the word of the Lord, we're told, comes to Jonah. I mean, this is heavy. And the word of the Lord says, arise and go to Nineveh. And part of the comedy here is in the compact way the story is told. So no sooner does the word of the Lord come to Jonah than Jonah does arise. And instead of going 500 miles to the east, goes 2,500 miles to the west. That's funny. He's a bad prophet. Prophets don't do that. Now in Solomon's day, a boat going to Tarshish probably wouldn't return for three years. I mean, he is really fleeing the presence of the Lord. And we're told that he paid the fare And that probably means that he bought the whole ship. (laughs) So eager was he to flee from the presence of the Lord that he paid for the whole ship, the crew of 12, which would have been costly. He was serious about not being a prophet. Well, sure enough, God outruns him with a storm. Ship begins to break up, and we're told the sailors were fearful, obviously. And each one cried to his own God. So you almost have people going to prayer stations each to his own God. And this would be, of course, because people were from different places. And in the ancient Near East, every 
region had its own set of gods that were kind of responsible for that region in the people's minds. It was their jurisdiction. But when you're in international waters, no one's really sure whose God is in charge. And so part of the comedy here is everyone's running to their prayer stations to pray because they're not sure if it's your God or my God or his God or who's angry. Let's just do it. And so everyone is praying except Jonah. And that's funny too. He is down asleep. Everyone's pulling their piety and he is snoring. Until the captain comes down and says, hey, everyone's praying. You need to pray to your God too. Well, none of this seems to be working. The ship is breaking apart. And so they have to take the next step. They have to figure out whose God is angry and which person made their God angry. And the part we didn't hear this morning is what they do next is they cast lots. And that would mean that you take a part of your possession, your watch, you know, they didn't have a watch, but your watch or a ring or a coin and you put it in a bag. And then they would shake it up and they draw the thing out, and then that would attach to a certain person, and they begin with that person. <laughs> it now becomes an interrogation. What country are you from? What's your job? What have you done recently that might piss a god off? Well, of course, as luck would have it, Jonah, they pulled his token out of the bag first, and you don't want to be the first person because they're highly motivated to solve the problem with the first person. So they ask him, and who is your God anyway, finally? And this is where Jonah makes his big mistake. Almost naively, and part of the comedy is how naive Jonah is. Almost naively, he says, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord sometimes. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, he might have been okay if he hadn't said made the sea. Because now he postures his God as the eternal God, as the cosmic deity, as the one who is actually in charge of the waters. Well, now everyone's afraid. They realize that Jonah is the problem. And they say, well, what are you doing on this boat? And he says, I'm fleeing from the Lord. <laughs> Again, a childlike response. And so Jonah knows the game is up. He knows the storm won't stop until they throw him overboard. So he says, Pitch me overboard. Now, this is a dilemma for the sailors. Because in the one thing, absolutely. Great plan. On the other thing, they don't really know Yahweh. See, they know their own gods. Their own gods are impetuous and angry and reactive. And they're thinking, well, if we throw Jonah overboard, then his god is going to be mad because this is his prophet. And so they're not so sure what to do now. Throw Jonah over and get rid of the problem, or throw Jonah over and cause a bigger problem. And so we're told they row like crazy to get to dry land. They don't want to kill him. They would like to just drop him off gently. They can't do it, though. Storm is so bad. So ultimately, they take their chances. But interestingly, they begin praying to Jonah's God. <laughs> oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. And so they throw Jonah overboard. We're told that they, if Jonah didn't, greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And then we're told a great fish swallowed him and the storm subsided. Now again, I spent some time on the story because I believe that stories mentor us. 
and the Holy Spirit will continue working this into your life. But let me offer a few footnotes to that. What do we learn from this story? What does the narrative teach us? Well, as I said before, what Jonah teaches us is that God is the God who wants life. In a story like this that's so surrounded by death, actually, and obviously, no one actually dies. God takes care to protect the sailors. He protects Jonah. And most of all, he protects 120,000 Assyrians in Nineveh. Ultimately, Jonah will go to Nineveh, Nineveh, preach the word, and amazingly, they will be converted. No thanks to Jonah himself, who continues to be the reluctant prophet throughout the book. But in reading this, it is simply not true that the God of the Old Testament is not the merciful, long-suffering, patient God who as, a, who as maker has always wanted to bring life. In fact, the book ends, the very last verse ends with this, with God arguing against Jonah, who is the worst kind of nationalist, who wants to keep God only for Israel and for no other people. God says this to Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. In other words, God wants to forgive them for they know not what they do. That is the last word on Jonah, God arguing for compassion on Israel's arch-rival neighbors, the Assyrians. So the good news behind the good news is that God created this world for life. He created a people that they might participate in the life of God. And that is always the telos or the end. That's the first point. Second point is to read the story about God saving Jonah alone is not really a right literal reading. It is about God saving others. It is about God saving the Assyrians. And the point here is that your and my obedience to God is not just about our personal holiness, but it is about saving others. You know, there are really no private acts, maybe because you and I think we're kind of bordered by skin like a wetsuit, that somehow there's private acts or private thoughts, or we think because we're in houses bordered by walls that nothing will leak out. But you and I, of course, are leaking out things all day for good or for ill. Our choices, our thoughts, our actions, they are affecting others. In one of my favorite novels, The Brothers Karamazza, Dostoevsky has the elders of Sima say this, all is like an ocean, appropriate to our story this morning, all is like an ocean, all flows and connects. Touch it in one place and it echoes at the other end of the world. All connects. So sometimes our acts of sin will affect people in ways we have no idea about because all connect. But equally, our acts of goodness reverberate in ways that we may not know. That is, of course, the point of the gospel reading this morning. That is what Mark says the kingdom of God is life. Like it's told, The kingdom of God is like a seed thrown on a field by a man who then goes to bed and forgets about it. <laughs> He pitches a small seed and the sprout grows and he has no idea how it happens. 
The earth does it all without his help. First a green stem of grass, then a bud, then the ripened grain. And when the grain is fully formed, he reaps harvest time. Well, that is what your and my obedience is like. Even a small act of obedience, even an apparently personal act of holiness, even one that's internal, is like a seed that gets cast about, and we don't know how the Holy Spirit will blow this. To what other lands this seed will take root, and sometimes grow into trees, all while we're, so to speak, asleep. We have no idea. The journalist Kathleen Falsani, who now lives in Laguna Beach, tells a story about how they adopted an orphan from Africa. That's the end of the story. The beginning of the story was the purchase of a raffle ticket, a small donation they made to a friend's fundraiser, which they could not attend themselves personally. They just bought a raffle ticket. The person was coming by the desk at work, and they say, sure, we'd love to support your ministry. Well, they won the raffle, which was a safari to Africa. And so while they were there, they had some contacts, and they happened to visit an orphanage there. And they met a boy who had a hole in his heart. And on the way back, they talked among themselves and they actually wept because they knew that boy would probably not make it to adulthood given the medical care available to him. Now, Kathleen Falsani was a journalist at the time for the Chicago Sun-Times. And so she did what the only thing she could do really as a journalist. She wrote a story about her trip to Africa and mentioned this boy Vasco in her story, mentioned his condition, mentioned that nothing really could be done about it in Malawi where the boy was from. That article appeared Friday morning. By Saturday afternoon, three hospitals had called her to say that they would like to do the procedure free of charge. It took them 18 months to get Vasco from Malawi to Chicago, but they did. They fixed his heart, the full intention of sending him back to Malawi. But then when they realized the ongoing care he would need, they began to think about adoption. They were told adoption would be impossible under these circumstances. Um, a few months later, that decision was reversed, and they adopted Vasco. It started with a raffle ticket bought in a cubicle at work, a seed that was blown across, a personal act of holiness that God used to save others in a way that was entirely unanticipated, happening, so to speak, while they were asleep. The encouragement of Mark is just to put our obedience into play, we don't know where to go, who it will save. But to just put it into play like a seed. That's the second point. God is the giver of life, and our obedience is not just about us, but it's about saving others. And finally, in Jonah's case, this is a story about disobedience, something left undone, an act of disobedience that God redeems. And while not all our trials are a result of something we've done, some are. Some are a result of myself acting unwisely, unselfishly, or sorry, selfishly and in immaturity. And certainly Jonah did that. But God brings him back for a second chance. And in chapter 2, his hymn is actually prayed from the belly of the fish. But he recognizes that God, even there in that darkness, where he can do nothing but reflect upon his decisions, he says, I cried out from my distress, from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Jonah doesn't reference the fish, but that's where he prays from. He's not completely saved yet. In fact, he's in complete darkness, I assume, with no freedom, 
no way immediately to act. All he can do is cry out. He must kind of sit with the knowledge of his own poor decision and its consequences. But his prayer is one of gratitude because he knows that this dark place that he's landed himself in by his own decisions, this humbling position is also the beginning of his second chance. Now, some of you may be here this morning and you may be feeling something of the darkness and despair of regret of your choices and its consequences. And when you think about him, it is a little bit like you're in the belly of the fish. I can't go back and undo what I did. But that's not God's view of things. God is the God of second chances, third chances, and fourth chances. See, if your self-knowledge leads to despair, then you've misunderstood self-knowledge. In self-knowledge, our journey begins back to God. It is a place where God begins giving us a second chance. In his gentle hand of correction, he always offers us a way, not necessarily to fix what happened in the past, but to freshly experience how our continued obedience to him can bring life to others. So I want to close this morning just by inviting you to let this story work on you to let it go deep in you. I invite you maybe to consider one act of obedience that the Lord's been calling to you recently. Maybe like Jonah, something you've left undone. Something that for a while he's been calling you to, a phone call to someone. Maybe a personal habit of holiness. Maybe an act of generosity. Something he's been asking you from, instead of going 2,500 miles to Tarshish, just sit and open. Because it may not be just about you. It may be about someone else. Or for some of you, you may not really believe that God is a God of compassion. I mean, you do at one doctrinal level, but another level, like, Lord, do you really care? Are you really the God of compassion for these other people or for myself? The story of Jonah says yes. But this morning you might sit with, Lord, do I actually believe that? And Lord, if I don't, well, help my unbelief. You are the God of life. And third, again, while some of you may be regretting some choices from the past, know that the God is a God of second chances. That he wants you to experience life with him. And that he has blown our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And that his mercies are new every morning.